You know, we live a lot of our life waiting. Uh, when you are perhaps a young person growing up, you're, you're waiting for your birthday, you're waiting for Christmas, you're waiting for these pivotal events when you're little, the surprise of being a child. As you get older, you're waiting for the ultimate gift of life, a set of keys to drive a car. Um, your parents are holding back as long as they can, not wanting that day to arrive, but you're waiting. Then when you finally get the keys to the car, you're waiting for college, perhaps. You want to go off to school somewhere and find your way and become an adult. And then you're waiting to find out where you're accepted, what school you'll get into, what the offers might be, where you'll go. And then, of course, when you get there, you're waiting for what all that's going to be like and the experience therein. And after two, three semesters, two years or so, you're settled in. It's, you know what you're doing. And now you're waiting for perhaps a major or what will I work in when I finish that? And along the way, you might be waiting for a husband or a wife or looking around and checking things out. And, and you graduate and you're waiting for the job offers and you're waiting for the job offers and waiting for the job offers. And then you get the job and then you're waiting for the next job offer because you don't like that job and you bounce around a little bit and then maybe you get married and you're waiting for the ring, you're waiting for the wedding, you're waiting for that day, you're waiting for the honeymoon. And then you get settled into a routine and you figure out jobs and career paths and you start talking about kids perhaps if you get married and you say, well, we're going to have kids and then you wait to get pregnant and you might go through infertility. You might go through all sorts of stops and starts and trials, and you're waiting and waiting. And then when you're pregnant, you're waiting for the day to deliver. The longest year in a woman's life is the year she's pregnant. It's the only year she wishes she was a year older is the year she's pregnant. And you're waiting for that baby to come. And then you, that first baby's born, and you wonder, what did I do before? I had this child. And, and then you're waiting for that little boy or girl to sleep through the night. And you're waiting for them to walk and to be potty trained and you're waiting for them to be able to dress themselves and brush their teeth and comb their hair and pick up their rooms and then you're waiting for them to go to school and of course you cry a little bit but you want them to go to school and, and then you're waiting for the homework and the grades and you're waiting for them to take initiative and be responsible and you're waiting and waiting and waiting and then as they go through that period they become teenagers and you can't wait for them to grow through that. And then it starts all over again. And somewhere in there, we're waiting on pathology reports. We're waiting on labs. We're waiting on a diagnostic process that takes too long. What do we have? What's going on? We're waiting for the phone call that mom died, the dad died. We're waiting for the divorce to settle, we're waiting for a house to sell, we're waiting to buy a house, we're waiting to build a house, we're waiting to go on vacation. We wait a lot, don't we? In this cycle of human existence, it seems to me we're always waiting for the thing we don't have when it would do us well to be at rest in that middle. I've said many times before, the only time I truly have faith is when all the props are knocked out. You see, if I'm healthy and have money and Cindy and I are getting along swimmingly and the kids are doing well and all is right with the world... I really don't have faith in God. That may be a terrible thing for me to say, but I don't because I am self-sufficient. I live in the delusion I'm self-sufficient. But when the pain, the disease, the disappointment, the heartbreak, the tensions, the problems, the health issues we can't figure out, when the loss of job careen in, then we kind of get busy spiritually. God, where are you? So we live in this illusion and then when we, we hate to wait, then when we get there, we're waiting for the next thing to wait for. Does this make any, I mean, why would we live this way? 
the ancients waited for a lot of the same kind of thing. They waited to be healthy. They waited to have a crop. They waited to be prosperous. They waited for their son or daughter to get married, to fall in love. They waited for grandchildren, just like you and me. But the ancient believer, the pious Jew who believed in a coming Messiah, waited for Messiah more than those things. Sure, they had horizontal concerns, but their concerns were also future. When the Messiah comes, open your Bible to Mark chapter 1. Last week, Lloyd introduced the Gospel of Mark, giving us an overview. And we want to continue in chapter 1 today with the identification the incarnation and the inauguration of this Jesus. The identification, the incarnation, and the inauguration of this Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1 reads, The beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then if you drop to verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Mark does many things in his gospel that are unique. One of the things he does, he gives us these definitive breaks and movement. It's very easy to follow Mark's thinking. It's very easy to follow his organization. It is the most compact gospel. It is short, therefore it does not include what the so-called synoptics, Matthew and Luke, also include. But he gets to the point very quickly. And right away he moves from verse 1, in those days Jesus from Nazareth and Galilee, and now we move transition. Uh, in those days, what happens? He's baptized by John in the Jordan. The movement of Mark began with the prophecies from, from Malachi and Isaiah, then had an extended commentary on this person called John the Baptist and why his ministry was so critical, what the Baptist was doing, calling people to be baptized in the wilderness. Uh, he was directing this toward pious Jews. This baptism was not like Christian baptism. In that, he was calling Jews to, if you will, get ready because your Messiah is coming. We might think of it, get your act in order, get your life in order, get cleaned up externally because the king is at hand. And so pious, God-fearing, good Jews were going out into the wilderness, probably in the area of Jericho. I'm not precisely sure what our art department did with our set, but my guess is this is Jericho. It's a little bit south of Jericho, technically. And the, sea of, uh, the, the Jordan River would come from the Sea of Galilee north, going south into the Dead Sea. So I'm thinking they gave us a, a rendering of this right in the middle of it. Or maybe it just looks like it, and I'm making all that up. Uh, but Jericho is probably the area where John was conducting baptisms. Now, in this transition, we have no mention of Mary, Joseph, no angels, no manger scene, no dreams, no going back and forth to Egypt. We have none of the traditional accounts that we find, especially in Luke, in great detail. He jumps from Jesus coming on the scene, meeting John the Baptist, and then starting his ministry. He's 30 years old on page 1 of the Gospel of Mark. So Mark's goal is different than the synoptics. What he's focusing on, however, is the identification of who is this Jesus. And that's where he begins with chapter 1, verse 9. Verse 10, immediately coming out of the water. He saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him, and a voice came out from the heavens. You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. So Mark's introduction emphasizes the identification of who this Jesus is. Immediately, uh, Lloyd mentioned last time, 
40 times in your English Bible, if you use the New American Standard, 40 of the 51 times it occurs in the Greek New Testament, 40 of the times are penned by Mark in his gospel. It's movement, and you're going to see that through the story. Coming out of the water, that's the, immediately coming out of the water. You can't miss the movement. Now, coming up out of the water seems pretty clear this was immersion. Let's talk just a little bit about what Jewish baptism was and what it wasn't. It was not Christian baptism. Uh, I've mentioned this many times. And when you go to Israel, because it is God's will for you, uh, we will show you the mikvahs, roughly translated spelled M-I-K-E-V-H, mikvah. A mikvah is a ritual bath that the Jews were very familiar with. And when you stand on the southern steps, you'll see remains of over 70 that they have uncovered. Why would they have so many mikvahs? Because when you're going up to worship in the temple complex, the men took all but their inner garment off, and they went down a set of steps, a ritual rinsing, if you will, and came up another set of steps. The original mikvahs had a set in and out. As people saved money and uh, got more expensive, just like anything you want to build your dream home, you can't afford your dream home, so you build your semi-dream home. So they would build a smaller mikvah with just one set of steps. But the original ones had a step going down to cleanse you and then out as you were cleansed. It was a ceremonial bath. They were familiar with these. They're in the area of Jericho. They're in Masada. They're in Engedi. In fact, if you dig much around any area, you'll find a mikvah. If you find a synagogue, you'll find a mikvah. So the Jew is very familiar with this idea of a ritual washing, not like a baptism that we think in, in, in Christian circles of what baptism means and what it doesn't mean. Think further. In Mark 1, 5, the last phrase of uh, uh, verse 5 of chapter 1, they were being baptized, what? Confessing their sins. Jesus doesn't confess his sins. Jesus doesn't need to morally repent. Jesus doesn't need uh, some ritual cleansing before he goes up to the temple. He's Jesus. Why is he getting baptized? To be identified. The introduction of the Gospel of Mark is you need to understand this is the Messiah for whom you have been waiting. He's come. He's arrived. He's on stage. And Mark's story starts 30 years. He's got three years left. That's the way Mark begins his gospel. Notice in this identification, verse 10, he saw the heavens opening. Uh, Mark records what Jesus saw. In fact, there are three spectacular things Mark quickly describes. First, the heavens opened. It's the Greek word schisma, schism. It's the same word used when the, the uh, veil is torn from the top to the bottom in the temple complex. It's rent, the King's English said. The, 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 the curtain was rent from top to bottom when Christ dies. Uh, this picture is something opening. In my mind, the heavens opening. It's a Steven Spielberg-esque story. And the heavens were rumbling and opening. I was uh, a few months back in the public's... Uh, parking lot. I'd come out from buying a few things and all these people had their phones up. It was like some sort of science fiction movie. They were all holding their phones in the sky. What is a UFO? And I look up and it's the most beautiful sunset we'd seen in days. The, the storms had passed and it was almost an eerie, spectacular, magnificent and everybody was trying to capture it with their cell phones, you know, doing this kind of nonsense. Of course, it doesn't look like that. Let's do it again. You, know, you can't capture it. It's just too much. The heavens opened First spectacular thing. Secondly, the spirit like a dove descending upon him. The spirit like a dove descending upon him. The ancients have depicted this in so many interesting ways. 
Uh, if you look at some of the artists of a long time ago, of the Renaissance period, pre-modern art, you'll see birds always landing on Jesus' head. In fact, some churches use a dove as their logo, if you will, as their insignia for their church denomination. Lots of speculation about this dove-like appearance. Um, let's look at what the verse says. The Spirit, like a dove, descending. doesn't say that a bird landed on Jesus' head. It says the Spirit, like a dove, descended. Back to my semi-sanctified uh, imagination on this one, semi-semi. A Spielberg-esque, something like a person image of the Spirit of God from the heaven opening, now this thing comes down, and it's landing, it's light, it's coming down like a dove, gently like a dove would land. Descending, not, not coming in like a, you know, a hawk to kill, but coming in gently. And then the third spectacular thing, a voice came out of heaven. The voice is the exclamation point of Mark's record. The heavens open, the Spirit of God descends, and a voice comes out of heaven. You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. God has spoken. The book begins with the prophecy. He's 30 years old, he's on the scene. The Baptist has a role in that transition, calling Jews to repent. The gospel came first to the Jew. Jesus is now coming out at 30 years of age, coming out to do his ministry for three years before he's killed. And Mark makes the point that three spectacular things happened to identify this Jesus. The heavens opened up, the Spirit of God descended, and the voice of God came from heaven. Many times in our Old Testament we can read about God breaking through, his voice being heard. In Genesis 22, 2, God said to Abraham, Now take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. How'd you like to hear that? Psalm 2, verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And of course your Bible probably has a reference to Isaiah 42 here. 42.1, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen the one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Mark's gospel exquisitely records the three spectacular events. The heavens open, the spirit descends, and the fulfillment of Scripture occurred right before their eyes. The identification of this Jesus. Verse 11, we, are, we read this phrase, my beloved son. It's an interesting phrase that he's well pleased with him. God the Father confirms him as his son, but the word beloved uh, tugs at us. It's not a word we use very often. You probably don't say to your wife, good morning, beloved. Or your kids don't come in, oh, beloved mother of mine. We don't use that kind of language. What in the world does this mean? It's one of those Bible words. Um, the word select or chosen is also embedded in this word. If you choose someone or select them because you love them, now, God the Father is choosing His Son, His one and only Son, to do something. Uh, th think about this in very practical terms. Uh, when have your pre-teens or teens come into the house and said, Oh, mother of mine, how can I help you prepare dinner tonight? Could I clean the kitchen after you cook? Would that be a help to you? Oh, father of mine, don't take the garbage out. I would love to do that for you to support my family and be part of this system. 
Those are parenting fantasies, by the way, just to <laughs> calibrate you a little bit. Um, but if a child does that, and they come, look, Dad, I've worked really hard and made all A's and B's. Aren't you proud of me? And you say, I'm so proud of you, son. I'm so proud of you, daughter. Because a beloved child, now this is, this is talking theory, okay? A beloved child loves his or her parent, and they want to please the parent. That's how, the best we're going to think of this. A beloved child says, my, my parents want the best for me. They're not the idiots I think they are. They really want the best for me. And if I'm smart, I'll listen. Are they perfect? No, but I'll listen to them. Now, what does a parent do when a child loves them well? Just about anything they need or want, right? If your child is doing the right thing the right way, they're working hard at school, they're obedient, they're in on time, they're staying in communication with you, they're picking up the room, whatever it is you're nagging them about, if they're living as a pretty good son or daughter, you're more than glad to lavish stuff on them, right? It's when they don't, when they're disobedient, rebellious, they roll their eyes, they give you the haughty look, I'm not going to do anything for you. If that's the way you treat me, just see what you're going to get from me. Now, this is a human horizontal illustration. Be careful. God the Father chose his son, the only one he had, and the son said, I'll obey you. I keep forgetting to look it up. It's John 6.38 or 6.36 where Jesus says, I always do that which is pleasing to the Father. That verse dismantles me every time I come across it. I always do that which is pleasing to the Father. I only do what the Father tells me to do. That's an obedient person. Human parents are perfect. But we get an image here of the perfect father and the perfect son. Don't miss in chapter in verses 10 and 11 the Trinitarian doctrine. We have God the Father speaking, we have the Spirit of God descending, and we have Jesus the Son of God, Jesus the God-man. The Trinitarian doctrine clearly taught, which strangely is being jettisoned by more and more churches and more and more seminaries. We are introduced to the incarnate man. This is more than sending his son to be the ruler. He is sending his son to die. And Mark's gospel is positioned to introduce this man in the best way he can, the God-man. There was a prophecy made about him 700 plus years before he was even born. The prophecy is fulfilled. The transition is the Baptist, which was also prophesied. The Baptist is laying his mantle of baptism of an Old Testament model of the mikvah on this Jesus, transitioning it to what the new baptism will be. And John will diminish, and Jesus will come to prominence for the next three years. F.F. Bruce wrote it this way, The Messiahship was in terms of servant, humble, obedient, and suffering. Accomplishing his mission by passing through death, and entrusting his vindication to God. Well, we have the identification, number one. Secondly, the incarnation, verses 12 and 13. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beast, and the angels were ministering to him. Immediately, as Mark's movement again, the temptation account is not belabored. We don't have Matthew and Luke where we have the three different dialogues between Satan and Jesus. He jumps over all that. He's just explaining he was tempted. Not to bore you with grammatical details, but the word 
being tempted is an ongoing present active word, meaning he wasn't just tempted three or four times during those 40 days. He was beleaguered and tempted the entire 40 days that he's in the wilderness uh, on, on his own. Now, the text tells us in Mark and in Matthew and Luke that he was led by the Spirit. We've got this unusual word here in chapter uh, 1, verse 11, where he was impelled by the Spirit, impelled him to go into the wilderness. It's a strange word. It's the same word Jesus used when he tosses the tables and he impels the money changers out. It's the same word used when he throws out demons. He impels them out. It's the same words the demons use when they're afraid Jesus is going to throw them into the abyss and they say, throw us into the swine instead. So why does Mark use this word? I don't have the precise definitive answer, but I think it's typical Markian. He's showing movement in the text. This is a strong emphasis. He's been identified. The heavens open. The spirit descend. The voice came out. This is my son. You're the one in whom I'm well pleased. Now you go to the wilderness. Because the one identified had to go into the wilderness to suffer. The 40 days, again, many, there's all sorts of uh, uh, conjectures about it. I think it simply parallels the 40 years of Israel's wilderness wandering. David Garland writes, the wilderness was also considered the staging ground for Yahweh's future victory over evil. It was the place where some thought that the final holy war would be fought and won. Christ was also to appear in the wilderness. The wilderness was not only God's staging ground for the future eschatological victory, it was also God's proving grounds for testing people. Consequently, it was remembered as a place of disobedience, judgment, and grace. Why does Israel spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness? Because of the failure at Kadesh Barnea. They didn't believe God. They went up against God's word, and they're going to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and everybody 20 over dies during those 40 years. So out of the 40 years to 19, you get 58-year-olds that are coming into the land who all they've done for 40 years is wandering in the wilderness. And this parallels that. Secondly, he's tempted by Satan. Uh, again, don't want to bore you with this, but there's an ongoing temptation. It's ongoing he's going to have to do this. Uh, to be tempted is to trick to deceive or manipulate. To trick, to deceive, or manipulate. Let's take a sidebar and think about when you and I are tempted, we're tricked, we're deceived, or we're manipulated and to think that something we do really won't have bad consequences. I, I love this guy, I love this girl, my wife or husband love me. If I have an affair, I'm loved. I mean, life is so unjust to me. I'm being tricked, I'm being deceived, I'm being manipulated. If I cheat, it's no big deal. I'm not hurting anyone but myself. I don't care if I hurt myself. I'm being tricked. I'm being deceived. I'm being manipulated. Whatever we scheme in our own hearts, the fuel added by Satan's minions and temptation, we're being tricked, deceived, and manipulated, thinking that we can shortcut a process by sinning to get something that we can never get or attain. And once we get it through the sin process, we hate it. We hate ourselves for doing it. The, con the, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes, our guilt comes. He's being tempted by Satan. He's being tricked, deceived, and manipulated to show that he's fully God, fully man. Thirdly, he's among the wild beasts. Mark is the only one who mentions this. Dash any notions of Jesus in the wilderness, petting animals. <laughs> the animals that survive in the wilderness are vicious animals who live in the harshest of environments. These people who run these 
these 100-mile races in the desert, I mean, they've got to be sick. <laughs> Running a marathon is sick enough for those of you who do that. Good for you. Bless your heart. I'm proud of you. Um, but you hydrate. You learn to hydrate. When you run in the wilderness, you actually have to run to dehydrate. You have to dehydrate yourself down. Instead of training to run a marathon and staying hydrated, it's just the opposite. You train on less and less fluid because you can't stay hydrated in the wilderness and the desert runs. And when you finish that 100-mile race, you know what you are? A piece of beef jerky. <laughs> Congratulations, you know. You took your body to the limit. You get a sticker on the back of your car. I'm an idiot. I mean, you know. I'm a tough idiot, but I'm an idiot nonetheless. The wilderness is a bad place. Get rid of this notion it's a good place to go. And the wild beasts are there. Now, this is very interesting because the first Adam is in a garden and he falls and he's in, out of the garden, working the soil it's by the sweat of his brow to exist. The second Adam comes and he goes into the wilderness. The first and second Adam parallels are inexhaustible. In Eden, the domestication of animals, there was no meat eaters. There were no carnivores eating uh, you know, vegetarian animals. That was a different world pre-fall. When the animal kingdom fell, it fell, as did the world. And so Jesus comes and he goes, identification, not to the Garden of Eden, but to the wilderness. He will suffer and he will die. Not to reclaim the wilderness, but to bring salvation to man. Fourth, he's ministered to by angels. Now this is a fascinating concept, con uh, contrast that Mark does that no one else does. And I've never seen this before in all my life. When we think of ministering by angels, we have these pictures in our head of you know, the angels sitting there around Jesus as he's chilling in the wilderness, you know, all these artist renderings. Um, Mark's alignment of the wild beasts and the ministering to by angels is very interesting because the word ministering there is the same word servant, which is one of Mark's key words in the gospel. So sanctified imagination, grammar seems to suggest the way he was ministered to, they're protecting Jesus while he's in the wilderness. Then my mind goes to, is there anywhere else in the Bible where angels are protecting somebody against animals? Where? Daniel in the lion's den. So it's no surprise that this, he's fully God, but he's fully man. He's been identified as such in the incarnation. Now he goes in the wilderness to be tempted just like Israel was for 40 years, for 40 days. He's going to be hungry. He's going to get tired. He's going to be tired of people and withdraw. He's a human being, but he's fully God. He emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant, Paul told us. And so in this wilderness experience, the angels are serving him. Psalm 91 sheds some very interesting light on this passage. Psalm 91, verse 11. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against the stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. So we do have imagery that underscores the storyline. Well, we have the inauguration, uh, the, the um, identification, the incarnation. He's a fully God, fully man tempted. And finally, the inauguration, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 
skips another year of Jesus' life. There's no Judean ministry here. And again, the movement. Now, after John had been taken into custody, taken into custody is the same word betrayed of Judas. He's taken away. We don't hear anything more about the Baptist until later on in Mark 6. No story like the other Gospels. Galilee is the portion where Jesus spends 60% of his life. When you go to Israel, we'll take you to the top of Mount Arbel. There's no biblical reference to Arbel, but it's the highest mountain on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, which is basically a lake, a large lake. And we'll stand on the top of the Arbel looking out at the so-called Jesus Triangle. Because from where you stand there, you can see where Christ spent 60% of his life or more. And you stand there and you see Tagba and Bethany and Capernaum and all these things all the way around the Gerasenes where the demon acts were. And you, you stand there amazed at this lake district and you see where he was. And Mark is giving us the picture, the record that he came. He was identified. The Baptist points him out. He's identified by the sky opening, the spirit descending, the voice of God. He goes to the wilderness to be tempted and harassed for 40 days. The angels protect him, and now he moves into the area of Galilee. Two declarations. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's starting. This, this announcement is the largest announcement ever made in history of somebody coming on the scene. There's never been any larger announcement because God came on the scene. Not a king, not a pope, not a prince, not a dignitary, not a rock star, not your favorite band coming to Bridgestone. The God of heaven ripped open the sky, sent a spirit to identify his son, and his son comes on the scene. And this is the announcement. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from what you have been thinking to what you are now embracing. We'll develop the whole idea of repent and believe as we go through the series, but I would not parse those words too tightly. Repentance is a change of mind. Trusting in Christ is the objective. And God calls you, and at some point you turn and you respond to him. And how that all works out is a little bit of a mystery. What are you waiting for? What am I waiting for? I'm waiting for certain things to line up and work out so that I can have a happy life the way I have designed my decades. Just like you are. Let's admit it, as Westerners, we have a wonderful plan for our own lives. And we have goals and dreams that we'd like to fulfill, many of which we've already accomplished for some of us in this room. Some things we've learned we don't really want that or need that as we get older. Our, our tastes change. I don't know how many couples I've met who've moved across country to come here because their kids are now in Middle Tennessee having their grandbabies. So they leave homes of 40 years to go across country because that wasn't in their plan when they got married, probably. What are we waiting for? Telegraph. Big megaphone announcement. Christ came. He's got three years. He's going to be crucified. you got three years left. What are you going to do with it? What are you waiting for? We live so horizontally, sometimes we're no vertically good. And my encouragement to all of us is we live as people who are called to a kingdom. Quit trying to make earth home. It will never be anything better than a clean bus station. It's a transitory place. This life at best is a clean bus station. Yes, there are nicer bus stations and there are crummier ones, but it's still a waiting station. What are we waiting for? What's the old saw? I want to go like my grandfather did. 
quietly in his sleep, not screaming like the passengers in his car. I love that joke. I want to die in my sleep when I'm 80, full of life and vigor. I don't want to decay and be decrepit, do you? What are we waiting for? Men and women, you and I, if you're a believer in Christ, it's done. It's settled. Your salvation is secure. Your sins forgiven. He died in your place on your behalf instead of you. What are you worried about? We of all people should be looking forward to the return of the king. Because when he comes, it'll all be set right. And we won't care one whit about the history. Because it aligns with salvation history, what he's doing. You're kingdom people, whether you know it or not. And this story in Mark is the servant has come to make your sin clean, to make you in a right relationship with him, to provide the only way to salvation, and that you and I are about his work, not ours. Father in heaven, help us to recalibrate our views of life. We are all guilty of living horizontally. I am chief of living for this life too much, too often, too much of my energy and time spent on the horizontal. The king's come. He's proven who he is. Your voice demonstrated it. There's no doubt who he is. Help us live as men and women who long to see him return, to be part of his kingdom now and looking forward to the ultimate one then. And may we share this great news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ with friends that need to know him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a phenomenal week.